My name is Sarah Mander, and on behalf of the Tyndall Centre for Climate Change Research, I'm delighted to welcome you to the third in our seminar series, Climate Change, Inequality and X, and today X equals energy. So access to clean and affordable energy is crucial to support economic development, while with the potential to alleviate poverty, improve access to healthcare, improve well-being, and fight climate change at the same time. Whilst global access to energy is increasing, still nearly 800 million people across the world are without access to electricity, and there's unacceptable inequalities within and between nations. In sub-Saharan Africa, there's been notable progress in improving energy access in urban areas. However, nearly 600 million people lack access to electricity and 900 million to clean cooking fuel. And so it's our, our collective passion for working together and learning how we can achieve universal access to clean, reliable and affordable energy that brings us here today. And so I'm, I'm someone, I started my PhD at the Tyndall Centre 21 years ago. And so it's a happy moment for me that today two of our speakers are Tyndall PhD researchers, as we're going to start off with presentations from Velma Makuru and Chris Walsh. So Velma is a researcher at Tyndall Manchester, and she's looking at environmental impacts of solar business models in Kenya on a life cycle basis. Her research evaluates the effectiveness of two circular economy, of new circular economy business models in mitigating environmental impacts of incumbents to inform decision making at the micro and macro level. Christopher Walsh is a PhD researcher also based at Tyndall Manchester, and he's interested in using energy as a catalyst for sustainable development. His work has been based in Malawi, engaging with a wide range of stakeholders to better understand the bioenergy sector and contributing to improving the quality of energy related development. And then I'm very excited to say that we're going to then be hearing from Mr. Pierre Tellet. Pierre is Managing Director of Climate Platform and Climate Finance Consultant at the African Development Bank, where he provides expert services on financing climate mitigation programs. Previously, he served as Senior Renewable Energy Specialist and Global Coordinator of the Climate Investment Platform at the Green Climate Fund. So without further ado, I am going to hand over to Velma to start these afternoon's discussions. My name is Velma and I am a researcher at Tyndall Manchester. My research explores environmental impacts of solar energy business models in Kenya and ways to mitigate them. And today I'm going to talk about energy access and climate change and business models. And I'm going to share my research findings through the lens of solar energy companies in Kenya that I am currently collaborating with. So solar energy is the fastest growing renewable energy in Kenya in terms of installed capacity. Now the International Energy Agency identified Kenya as a test bed for new business models for energy for, for new business models for energy access. And this explains why the region has achieved a commendable growth. So I collaborated with a company implementing the pay as you go business model. And this is how the business model looks like. So the company, the company buys components from the supply chain sells to off-grid customers, earns revenue, and the customer is responsible for the end of life. So the aim here was to quantify greenhouse gas emissions from this incumbent business model, and thereafter explore pathways of mitigating these emissions through radical or incremental changes to the business model. 
and we came up with a with, we came up with a revised uh, model. This is now under the business model innovation scenario. What activities the companies could do to reduce their greenhouse gas emissions? It's a little bit complicated, but the company buys from the supply chain with the option of taking back. It's so it shifts from selling products to delivering services to the customers. So it, lease, it leases or rents the components to customers, providing operation and maintenance services, upgrades and tech backs. It takes advantage of digitalization and operation and, and existing operation and maintenance networks to improve the lifetime of the systems. And it also explores new financing models to unlock capital to finance the new activities. I also collaborated with a company implementing mini grids in Kenya. The business model is the company buys from the supply chain, installs the, the generation and distribution system, sells electricity, earns revenue, and is responsible for either recycling or landfilling uh, the systems at the end of life. So this is the incumbent business model. Under the business model innovation scenario, the company buys from the supply chain, extended producer responsibility contracts are in place. So the company sells to the customers, but takes advantage of digitalization to monitor the systems and, ex and extend their lifetime. It also explores new financing models to unlock capital for financing the switch and also takes the systems back to the supply chain at the end of life. So basically it's switching from linear business models to new circular business models that encourage slowing and narrowing and closing resource loops throughout the lifetime of solar PV systems. And for business model innovations to work and companies to achieve the benefits that we just talked about, the first thing that they were concerned about are access to finance because the main concern was that the current business models give modest returns on investments and also the payback period is quite long, which disincentivizes companies from taking on new business models. So for them to transition access to finance is important. Also customer empowerment is important, especially for the pay as you go business model, because customers should be receptive of switching from owning systems to the, uh, to accepting services that are being provided by the companies. If customers are not receptive of the new business models, then it's not going to work. Another thing is disjointed efforts along the value chain is not going to amid, it's, it's not going to amount to much. Companies cannot work alone. They need collaboration along the value chain from production to the end of life for meaningful impact to be achieved. And lastly, enabling policies and an enabling policy and regulatory environment is prerequisite for a conducive environment for business model innovation to, to take place within the country. So yeah, that that's that was my findings from the companies that I collaborated with in Kenya. Thank you very much, Velma. Um, yeah, no, that was fascinating. I really enjoyed that. I would like to hand over for Chris. Chris, uh, over to you. Brilliant, thank you. Um, so I'm just going to do a quick reflection on one particular area of my research that was partially inspired at least by um, Professor Jumbe. Um, so my research as a whole it was based in Malawi and was on bioenergy and the possibilities of uh, using bioenergy and different methods of bioenergy for sustainable development. Um, 
So Malawi is a country in which approximately 83, 84% of people still live in rural neighbourhoods and um, use subsistence farming as their main form of income and eating. And so within that, there is often a demand for a kind of informal market. And one of those markets that has sprung up around eating and food is the charcoal market. So in Malawi, uh, the creation of charcoal outside of a few uh, areas which are tightly controlled is uh, illegal. Um, despite that, it is an incredibly widely used resource, mainly in cities and more middle class households, but also in rural neighbourhoods due to its long burn life. Um, price wise, charcoal is not hugely expensive one of these large sacks that you could see in the background there would set you back when i was in malawi about ten thousand kwacha which is about 10 pounds and um, whereas the equivalent amount of wood would be more expensive it is incredibly available there are uh, bags of charcoal being sold down every major road in Malawi and also in every major city and town. Um, it is sold from both individual sellers, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later, and also sold from large wholesalers um, who exist in a kind of informal way, because as, as I previously mentioned, their uh, whole business is technically illegal. Um, it's an incredibly difficult industry to enforce the legality however, uh, of the of the selling, buying and selling of charcoal, um, partially due to corruption elements, but also partially due to the sheer mass of uh, usage that is happening. In Malawi, 97% of people use some form of biomass for cooking. Uh, LPG and electricity for cooking are still very rare. Um, and while that transition is slowly beginning, it is an incredibly slow transition. And so what this part of my work was doing was talking with the charcoal sellers and also with regular people in the background about ways that we can make this, this industry more sustainable, which may sound like a slight dichotomy because obviously you're still burning things um, but if we can burn them more efficiently, we can make a significant saving in terms of carbon and also in terms of other health benefits, including particular emissions. So this is what's happened in Malawi over the past, so this is the past 30 years really. Um, Malawi has undergone a process of extreme deforestation. Um, since 2010, the areas have very, very slightly improved. However, in the south area, which you can see, um, I don't know if you can see my cursor, this area, which is around the city of Blantyre, which is the kind of second city of Malawi, there is a real issue with soil erosion, with susceptibility to storms. I don't know if any of you remember Cyclone Day, which took place a couple of years ago and involved huge devastation in that area, um, which previously could have been not avoided, but um, the damage would have been more limited by the amount of tree cover that had been there. And while this, a lot of this land has been made into cropland now, 
an awful lot of the motivation for that deforestation was the creation of charcoal, which, as I'm sure you know, is extremely energy intensive. So uh, for my project, one of the things I did when I had a bit of time, um, Professor Jumbe, in fact, advised me to go down into the charcoal markets and see if I could talk to people. Um, and so I did. I ended up going to about four charcoal markets all surrounding the capital city of Lilongwe and talking to about uh, 30 different charcoal sellers and business people involved in that industry. Um, so the first thing I want to show you is kind of the geographical spread of charcoal within Malawi. So I've marked here five of the five locations that I routinely heard people telling me that they had collected their uh, charcoal from. Um, the, every single one of these is a national for protected forest. Um, which kind of just emphasizes the point that enforcement is almost impossible. The other places that I heard people coming from, which is a more dangerous proposition, is within Mozambique. Um, the border between Malawi and Mozambique at Dedza, which is just south of the capital, Lilongwe, is uh, a very informal border, I think is perhaps the way to say it. Indeed, in roads in Dedza, where on the Mozambique side, where charcoal isn't illegal, there are many, many sellers, whereas on the Malawi side where it is, you uh, don't see it. It's a really odd kind of uh, 10 meter gap to go across to a different city, just crossing a road. Um, but one of, the, uh, one of the consequences of this going into Mozambique is Mozambique is significantly more dangerous, both in terms of wildlife and in terms of violence in Malawi. Um, and this has resulted in a number of people who, who had gone to Mozambique reporting injury to me and also um, stories of people who haven't made it back. Um, for these people as well, you add in the police brutality. Um, while enforcement is difficult and is not done to any real extent, um, there is often a system of bribery that uh, police will demand and um, with the result of, of not giving them money or giving them charcoal would be to have your bike destroyed and often a beating or being jailed. Uh, for many of these peoples, they are people who are transporting, that this is their entire livelihood. Um, the bike they own is often one of their most valuable uh, most valuable um, things that they they have. Um, and so when that's taken from them, it can take them a very, very long time to afford a new one and can start a beginning of a debt spiral that can trap them within this uh, industry. Um, I found that actually there'd been incredibly limited engagement with, uh, with uh, charcoal riders and transporters and collectors with uh, local NGOs. NGOs who I talked to about this um, raised the point that the illegality of the industry was the main concern that they didn't. However, what I invite you to think about is how uh, do we take what is a very informal and illegal marketplace and how do we engage the people who will inevitably let, be left behind, who are still themselves living in poverty. Um, the last thing that I got a comment from them was a real lack of opportunity to be able to move out of the industry. Um, 
it was a very all-consuming industry in that people were cycling extremely long hours up to all nights, multiple days, and people were coming from Mizuzu in the north of Malawi all the way down to the long way on a push bike, and which is a hilly and not particularly well uh, maintained route. And, and they were spending those two days just to get enough money to come back and then be able to supply for their families. Um, many of these people had gotten into the industry at a younger age um, and as a result of investing their time and their money in bikes and transporting equipment had not been able to invest that money in food in terms of seeds and in terms of fertilizer. So I just, as I say, invite you to have a think about what it means in terms of climate justice to be moving away from this industry and how we can do that in a way that isn't leaving people behind. Thank you for listening. Thank you very much, Chris, and, and thank you very much, uh, Velma. We will um, move on to, to hear from our next speaker, uh, Pierre Tellep. So this is, is more uh, in conversation and discussion. So uh, Pierre, I would like to, to kind of open up by inviting you to reflect on um, what is climate inequality in the context of energy access in Africa? Okay, thanks, thanks a lot for uh, inviting me uh, here. Um, yeah, to reflect a bit on what is uh, climate inequality, it's, uh, I mean, it's, it's a con concept that looks a bit complex, but uh, I, I think it's, uh, it can be more simple than what it looks. Um, climate inequality is uh, basically when you see that the people that are the most vulnerable to the effects of climate change are those that are also affected the most. That's climate inequality. Um, give you two examples. Um, see, for instance, when there is a, a heat wave um, and you know the temperatures start increasing, uh, the first people to die are the elderly ones, the most vulnerable. Um, or when there is, for instance, the flooding, um, and uh, you know people need to swim to escape. Uh, those that cannot escape and that get trapped into infested waters uh, that have been brought by climate change are people sometimes with existing medical conditions or simply people that are physically weak. Uh, so they are hit the most, while the rest maybe might pay the price of climate change uh, with some loss, maybe property loss, shelter loss, or some material loss. Those that are very vulnerable, uh, they pay actually with uh, the highest price, their own lives. Um, so that's climate inequality. It is, uh, is that uh, the most vulnerable are also exposed the most and then they get actually hit the, the most. And what does that do with, uh, with energy access, especially in the context of Sub-Sahara Africa? You see Africa is large. Um, and I'll also give here two examples, maybe building on the two presentations we, we had from the previous speakers. Uh, Velma has introduced the, 
the solar market, the mini grid market, and uh, Christopher has talked of uh, very uh, widely on charcoal. Um, starting with maybe energy and mini grids and solar. Uh, you see, there is um, the Sahel region in Africa. It's, uh, it's a set of countries from West to East Africa, about 11 countries. Um, those countries are very arid. Um, and the science tells us that, that uh, in the past um, 30 years, every 10 years, temperatures have been increasing in that region by 0.5 degree Celsius every 10 years. Um, now, if we go by this trend, it means that by the end of the century, since when the Paris Agreement was passed, we'll probably see an increase of five degrees Celsius in these 11 countries. That's a lot. That's almost catastrophic. So, and the countries that are within that uh, region are also among the least developed countries in the world with uh, very low incomes per capita. So here, that's an example of climate inequality where the people that are less prepared and that are most vulnerable are also suffering the most from the devastating effects of climate change. A second example, building on what uh, Christopher has said uh, on charcoal. You see, there have been some studies uh, around uh, the forest on the African continent. And uh, in the past 30 years, Africa has lost about 20% of its forest area, 20%. That's, that's a serious deal. Uh, if things go by this trend, same projection, by the end of the century, Africa will have lost 80% of its forest coverage. Uh, so we are also dealing here with an issue of forest extinction. And you know, forests are very important to regulate the global climate. Forests absorb CO2. Forests uh, can create uh, better local temperatures and uh, can also be a solution for uh, against land degradation. So, um, these forests that have been depleted are basically being depleted because of also energy needs. You know, people need charcoal uh, and people are cooking. Now, we can ban everyone for, from cooking, especially, you know, in the most vulnerable areas. Uh, but we can provide different technologies for cooking, uh, we can actually put in place some supporting policies also that will not be like seeing all this depletion of, of forest, uh, you know, as is happening massively right now. So that's also an example of climate inequality uh, in the energy sector. And here I really want to just say that 
make a link with climate finance because these inequalities are happening right now and the trend and the projections are showing that these inequalities are going to increase by the time. Therefore, climate finance especially has a very big role to play. And when climate finance is not sufficiently sensitive to this climate inequality, or climate finance, for instance, is delaying projects for energy access, or projects for access to clean cooking, um, that's a crime in reality. Uh, it's a crime against the most vulnerable ones. It's also a crime against the planet. So I think that the time is due for us to start thinking as we are discussing of climate justice and climate inequality, to start thinking also maybe of an international climate court, you know, that can settle also these matters because uh, crimes call for justice. So that's really what we are talking about when we are, you know, naming these inequalities. That's a, a very um, powerful suggestion there, Pierre. Um, I mean, just kind of, I mean, Velma talked about um, finance and the, the kind of the need to, to move away from, from aid finance and kind of harness the innovation from the private sector. Um, but I mean, could you sort of expand a little on uh, how kind of climate fan finance, as you suggested that as we know it today, it's, it's a source and it's driving that inequality. Could you expand a little bit more on, on that? Yes. Uh, the issues as we see them today, are, it's an emergency. The climate issues, it's, it's a crisis. It's, it's an emergency. And you don't deal with, with an emergency as if you are dealing like with business as usual. Um, one thing is that the flows of climate finance as we know them today are not designed or prepared to do things in a state of emergency. Um, we need actually skills in terms of emergency management. That's how climate finance and the whole climate issues needs to be managed. It's, it's a matter of emergency. Um, if you have your house, for instance, which is burning, you know, on flame, that's a matter of emergency. And if you want to get rid of the flames at, uh, at the moment, uh, you know, and then um, the fireman maybe comes and asks you to describe the climate rationale of the flames. You don't have time for that. Um, you, your first concern is first to get rid of the flames. And this is what we are saying now, especially, you know, in, in most vulnerable, least developed countries, um, we are seeing a status where the GDP is, get, is getting, you know, burned every year because of climate issues. We are seeing this massive depletion of forests. And then, you know, there is, there is a moment actually to have lots of literature and do business as usual in terms of project finance. 
But climate finance should not just be like any type of project finance. Um, so that's, uh, I think there is something to, to probably there is an evolution to have here in terms of emergency management. I also think that um, today the, the boundaries of climate finance, the way we know them can, can evolve a bit. You know, climate uh, finance is just defined in two things. The impacts are either mitigation or adaptation impacts. And uh, mitigation is pretty simple, is the amount of CO2 equivalents that, that are reduced. And adaptation, you see the improvement in terms of resilience, how many people are, are actually made less vulnerable to the effects of climate change. Uh, those two impact areas, in my view, are not sufficient today to deal with uh, the crisis uh, to the extent at which it is currently. Um, Nature-based solutions, for instance, provide um, an opportunity to address both mitigation and adaptation. So where do you classify really that impact? Uh, what does it even mean cross-cutting? And, uh, and then it is um, more and more um, acknowledged today that even climate mitigation is, is an adaptation strategy because when you reduce finally the CO2 emissions, you also help people increase basically the, the vulnerabilities to, to the effects, but that's much more like a long-term adaptation strategy. So, and that's where the research can really complement um, the climate finance to bring uh, some more innovative thoughts here in terms of quantifying or identifying first other areas of climate change, which the global community is dealing with right now and where climate finance will play a bigger role. Just assuming also that we move into from a bureaucratic process to a more emergency type of process. I mean, just given, you know, that the emergency, you, you talked about the, the need for research, but um, given that emergency, um, have we time for that research? Are there other ways in which uh, we can accelerate action in this space? You're right. You're right, Sarah. We actually have time for big research. That's, that's the $1 million question. Um, and um, I think the solutions are pretty much uh, straightforward today. And um, the best we can do is to start financing projects. You know, um, there are lots of climate projects out there uh, and those needs just to be financed. Um, and probably also creating more and more climate projects, uh, database where climate finance can find also bankable climate projects which they can invest and in return receive the climate, the climate impact. Um, so that's like the first thing. Uh, the other thing is really related to lots of policies and the, the whole policies and re regulatory framework, especially also 
on the African continent uh, right now. You see, like the, I mean, building on the two examples that we had from the previous speakers, um, solar systems, mini grids for rural electrification, um, they can play actually a big role into electrifying the 600 million people that are still on electrified today in Africa. Um, and so the solution is there, but there is a need to actually have very conducive, free, easy, nimble regulatory frameworks where finance, either commercial finance or climate finance can quickly um, provide funding and proceeds to, to projects. So I think that's, uh, that will be like the second uh, area. But then the research is not left behind. The research is definitely needed. The research is there to confirm that the impact is being achieved with time. Um, and the research is there to also provide us new ways of identifying impact areas that are effective to address the issues. Thank you. So, I mean, just one one final question for you before I open for me before I open it up to the to everyone to discuss. So, I mean, how can we? You've set out the challenges very articulately, but how can we solve the problem of climate inequality in the energy space in Africa? Yeah. There are 600 million people that are, that are there. That's the climate inequality. Um, so, as I said, we need to finance projects. Um, you see, for instance, I'll just give you an example. Right now, um, I've been called to act on a board on a mini grid developer company. Um, and I'm considering that seriously to encourage entrepreneurship. Uh, this is a company that has received a grant of $1 million from the US government uh, to develop 700 mini grids uh, in, in one country, in, in Africa. And that, uh, that $1 million by the US government uh, to that developer was quite, I think, important to just give them first the visibility, uh, but also as a, as a seed uh, capital to help them basically start raising their ambition. Um, and I think solving the problem is with this kind of initiative where climate finance, instead of being centralized, needs to find different streams. And Climate finance needs to actually go more directly into grassroots projects that are achieving impact on the ground instead of following a very bureaucratic process, which makes access to funds much more difficult, cumbersome for, for projects. I think that would be a very important leverage which can help us save time.
Thank you very much, Pierre, um, for your interesting reflections. So I'd like to, I suppose I'd like to, to kind of, to partly close and to thank people for being here. Um, and I suppose I'm, I'm, I'm very excited, I suppose, well, on the one hand nervous, but then also um, excited about the ideas of, of innovation, about young entrepreneurs, and hopefully ahead of, of COP26, then um, that's a, that will kind of be a, a space to, to drive climate action. 